But let's pray as we come to hear from God's word. Uh, Our Father God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. Uh, Your word is food for our soul. You and you alone are the delight of our hearts. And so we pray now that we would know you more deeply, treasure you more greatly, serve you more faithfully. Please use me in my weakness to speak clearly and faithfully as I should. And Father, may we all uh, grow in understanding uh, and joy in the Lord Jesus. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. Uh, It is so good, I could cry. Uh, That was the comment of this woman as she sat in a cafe with a coffee for the first time in months. It's so good, I could cry. Coffee in hand, it's a very Melbourne statement. Uh, Last week, our news has been flooded with the excitement and joy of people as they return to cafes and shops. Uh, But one statement from a reporter stood out to me. We will never take a cup of coffee for granted again. To which I thought, really? How long will this renewed zeal for the simple things in life like shopping or travel or eating out really last? Because maintaining zeal, maintaining our appreciation for the things that we have access to all the time is actually really hard. Uh, When we get a new phone, we're gentle and cautious to make sure it doesn't get scratched or damaged. But as the months go by, it's thrown onto the couch without a second thought. And sadly, many of us know that this is also true for our faith in Jesus. Uh, What was once white-hot zeal and joy and thankfulness can so easily turn into a lifeless routine or a burden to endure. What was once worth speaking up for, uh, what was worth being mocked for, is no longer exciting enough to even motivate us to turn on the TV for yet another live stream. So how do we maintain our zeal, maintain our passion and thankfulness for Jesus through the ebbs and flows of life? How do we make sure that our ongoing praise of Jesus does not descend into mere habits, but is the genuine, all-of-life gratitude that is not only what our Saviour deserves, but will actually be good for us. Well, Psalm 103 is given to us for that exact purpose. It's a psalm of David and a wonderful song of celebration to be sung every day and in every season. No situation or context is given for the psalm. There's no reference to hostility or pressure or some specific sin. This is a psalm that is given to help us through the good and the bad, the highs and the lows in times of pleasure or times of pandemic. And what may surprise us about this psalm is that it tells us that our praise or our worship of God will not happen by accident. A genuine praise is not simply to be a response or merely spontaneous. It is a discipline. In Psalm 42, we see David, the same author of Psalm 103, lecturing his own emotions when he says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. But in Psalm 103, it opens and ends with David urging himself to praise or to bless God. He's lecturing his will, disciplining himself to get in line with God's 
goodness and respond rightly. Verse 1, praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. To praise the Lord or to bless the Lord, as the ESV and some older translations have it, is to speak well of God's goodness and greatness, to have speech and life that celebrate the God we have come to know. And notice that David is not kind of promoting some thoughtless lip service to keep up appearances. He wants his praise to be of God to be genuine and heartfelt. All my inmost being praise his holy name. In verses 1 to 5, David is talking to himself, pleading with his own soul to give God the praise he deserves and to shake off anything, whether good or bad, that might cause him to not praise God. And so I wonder, in these opening verses, can you even relate to this psalm? David is so unwilling to let himself drift into apathy that he talks with, he argues with himself. He's not happy to just go through the motions with routine or ritual or to just give up and say, well, this is a season when his praise will just dissipate. He longs for, he pleads with himself to give God constant and authentic praise because that is what God deserves. And so do you share that longing? Are you unwilling to let yourself drift into formality of habits where the stirrings of your soul are left unmoved? Praise of God is a discipline that we have to work at. And I think if we're honest, we're actually often content to give God very little, nothing more than a few weekly habits. And so David shows us that central to changing this is our self-talk. Paul Tripp says, no one is more influential in your life than you, because no one talks to you more than you do. We need to learn the art of talking to, even arguing with ourselves. Self-talk is a big focus in psychology at the moment, because how we talk to ourselves is so central to our mental health. Uh, this lockdown at the moment has given lots of us more time at home and more time alone, which often leaves us to our own thoughts, which can be profoundly influential and unhelpful. So we need to spend less time just listening to ourselves and more time talking to ourselves. David shows us this as he urges himself in verse 2 to forget not all his benefits. Now, forgetting in the Bible is not just about being absent-minded, like not remembering your password or where you put your keys. To forget God is actually to disregard his lordship, its idolatry, its practical atheism as we live without reference to God. And this is deeply offensive to him. And we see an example of this in Deuteronomy 8. Forgetting often happens in the good times of life, not just the bad. And so David urges himself to remember God's benefits, the privilege of belonging to him, which will prompt and promote his praise. Which actually means that any disappointment we have in God is the fruit of amnesia. 
The true and living God that we have come to know through Jesus is never disappointing, never inadequate. And so to remember God, to remember in the Bible, is to have something so central to our conscience that it shapes our thinking, our behaviour and our whole life. And so having urged himself to remember, he then lists a selection of benefits in verses 3 to 5. He takes the time to list out and thank God for them. As Tim Keller says, this psalm teaches us that we must pray the truth into our hearts until it catches fire in the presence of God. Because the privileges and the benefits that David lists here are true for us in Jesus. Verse 3, who forgives all your sins. Through his death on the cross, Jesus has taken all of our sin and the death it deserved on himself. That every barrier to approaching the holy God has been removed by the God we offend. And this, of course, is not earned but graciously given. And David begins with forgiveness because all the other benefits listed here are the outworking of this restored relationship with God. Who, verse 3, heals all your diseases. As God deals with our sin, he is also at work to restore uh, our bodies and our lives from the corruption and the consequences of sin. And this healing is sometimes in this life that we experience but will be perfectly done in heaven. As Paul says in Romans 8, we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies when Christ returns. And isn't that just such a wonderful benefit and comfort? That whether it's the grief of cancer or just the debilitating pain of aging, Jesus will make all things new when he returns and wipes every tear from our eyes and gives us new bodies. It continues, verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit. Uh, the pit here is a picture of death, and we know David was rescued and escaped from death many times. But in Jesus, we see that redemption from the pit, from death itself, is secured through the resurrection. It's the gift of eternal life, that the sting of death is gone forever for believers. We are plucked from death itself and then made royalty, still verse 4 who crowns you with love and compassion. Now, this word for, for love here, it speaks of God's special covenantal love. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It's his steadfast love, his ongoing promise and goodness to his people in the face of their unfaithfulness. And he says that we are crowned in this love. It's a beautiful picture of kind of being covered with the ongoing experience of God's love because we know we are assured of his character and promise. Verse 5, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And now this is not a promise that we get whatever we want, but that God withholds no uh, nothing good from us. As we are faithful to God, we are assured of his goodness that God is enough for us. In Christ, we are brought to fullness. And not only does God give us all that we need and withhold nothing good from us, he actually sustains us in verse 5 to enjoy it, to serve him with an inward, a renewed 
vigor. The language of verse 5 is very similar to that of Isaiah 40. It says, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now you might be thinking that you actually can't say with David verses 3 to 5. Uh, so often in the ups and downs of life, we might not feel or be actually assured that we have any of these benefits. We might struggle to see God's protection and provision, to be aware of his love and goodness and sustaining strength. But I think that's exactly the point. So often we don't see the benefits, we don't remember and we don't enjoy them. And that was exactly the same and true for David. It's why we have Psalm 103. Because after pleading with himself to praise God in verses 1 to 5, in verses 6 onwards he grounds his praise and confidence in the benefits of God, not in his present circumstances or his feelings, but in salvation history. Verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. God goes, uh, David goes back to God's chief revelation of himself in the Exodus, when Israel was saved from slavery in Egypt, because that's where God's character, his love and compassion were displayed for all to see and know. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. As God saved his people and showed them his character, he showed he works righteousness and justice. That is, he delivers from evil while judging evil. No enemy is too great, no situation too difficult when the Lord acts on behalf of his people. But the beauty of God's revelation in the Exodus is not, though, not only that he changes people's situations, but the people themselves. God works righteousness. And what is glorious and comforting about the story of the Exodus is not simply how God removed Israel from Egypt, but how he endured and provided for them afterwards. And David is not trying to highlight God's power and control over the enemies or over, the, over nature. He wants to highlight God's love. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is a quote from Exodus 34, uh, when God passed by Moses on the mountain to reveal his glory. And what was the context for this revealing, for this event? As God saved his people and brought them to himself, as he made a covenant with them and promised to be their God, what did Israel do? Well, they got all their jewellery together, built a golden calf and worshipped it. But the Lord stuck with these people. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. David points us back, uh, points himself and us back to Moses because as Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says, no story surpasses the exodus for a record of human unworthiness, of grace abounding, and of benefits forgot. Because God's love is so beautiful, 
so compelling, so glorious, because it embraces us as we truly are. Look at verse 9. He will not always accuse, though he could. He will not, uh, he, nor will he harbor, he harbor his anger forever, though he could. Verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Uh, this is so important for us because it protects us from two errors. Firstly, from thinking that we are not offensive at all and that somehow God should love us. But secondly, it protects us from the error of being so caught up in our sin and our failure that we think God will not love us. Knowing God's love in the face of our sin and offense is so liberating because we don't have to pretend or hide. Tim Keller summarizes it beautifully. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is to be loved by God and what we need more than anything else. And as David highlights God's all-embracing and immeasurable love, uh, sorry, David highlights God's all-embracing and immeasurable love through the metaphors of verses 11 to 12. Verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You can see that David is at pains to find ways to express the enormity of God's love. As high as the heavens are above the earth, which for us all this time later with our technology and space exploration have just confirmed how large and incomprehensible it is. And the greatness of God's love is again seen in how he responds to our sin. He doesn't pretend it isn't there. He doesn't ignore it. He actually deals with it. Verse 12, he has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? Our sin is gone as far as the east is from the west. That never meets. It's never to be brought up again. And as we look at Jesus, we know that this is not some merely poetic language or wishful thinking. Our sin really has been removed because Jesus takes it on himself to the cross where he dies in our place. Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Jesus, we see not just the enormity or just the beauty of God's love, but the cost. The eternal, perfect Son of God is given for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so as David looks back to God's rescue in the Exodus, to remember and be assured of God's love in the face of our insult and sin, so too must we look back 
to the cross and delight in the costly love of Christ. And every relationship needs constant reminders and assurance of love. I cannot say to my wife, Holly, remember when we got married and I declared my love to you? That should see you through for the next five to 20 years, right? No, it wouldn't go down well at all. And what is true in marriage is certainly true for our faith in Jesus. And I think the problem for us is that we think we can be so familiar with these passages or the language or even the gospel itself that we think there is nothing for us to gain by turning back to them again and again. But the gospel is God's constant declaration of his great and costly love to which we must keep running to constantly. And as David recalls God's immeasurable love in verses 6 to 12, he then moves on to remember and celebrate his fatherly compassion. Verse 13, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like the flower of the field. The wind blows it over and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. Now, I have a two-year-old son, Thomas, and I think one of the biggest challenges uh, I've had since becoming a father, particularly over the last year, is being the source of guidance and boundaries, as well as discipline and comfort. At least once a day, there's the regular exchange of something like, Thomas, don't do that. You'll hurt yourself. Thomas does it and then hurts himself, and then runs to me, expecting hugs and consoling. And I find it really difficult, uh, because every time he runs to me for comfort, I really just want to stop, sit him down, and have the conversation. What did Daddy say? What did Thomas do? I want to defend my honour and say, I warned you, and now look where we are. But I'm sure you know, rationalising with emotional or hurt toddlers never goes well. And so rather than sit him down and go through it all as much as I'd like to, I get down and I embrace him with a hug and seek to reassure him that all is well. But to be honest, I'm not that good at it. I'm easily frustrated, often impatient, and I seek to treat him more like a teenager than a toddler. I find it difficult. And so how much greater is God's compassion in the face of our much greater offence. I think the longer I'm a Christian, the more I am overwhelmed by the patience of God. Because I think it is confronting for me and for most of us to realise how emotional, temperamental and inconsistent we really are. Like grass that's just blown around by the wind. All it takes for me is one night, bad night of sleep being stuck in traffic or running out of coffee, technology failure or even just being hungry to shape my behaviour and justify any number of sins. We never really like to admit our frailty and weakness. But God knows us. We are but dust. We are grass our feeble frame he knows better than we know ourselves. And when confronted with our fragility 
He is constantly compassionate. Verse 17. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. David is contrasting our fragility, our frailty and mortality with God's eternality. But the point is not just to show how different God is from us, but to assure us that his grace, his, con- his care is unending and inexhaustible. God's love never runs dry, never gives up, is never depleted or removed. It is from everlasting to everlasting. And so as David remembers God's immeasurable love and his fatherly compassion in the face of his frailty, He is assured afresh of the many benefits of God and prompted to praise. And the tragedy of all this, I think, is how often do we let our guilt of sin or awareness of our weakness cause us to run from God and not to him? How often do we turn to our performance or efforts to restore our joy or cover over our shame? So often we know and can even say we're saved by grace, but live by works. And so we must let our sense of failure or knowledge of our frailty be put to rest by a love more vast than the cosmos, a forgiveness greater than our imagination and compassion that we desperately need. It's why we find time and time again in the New Testament that a call to praise God takes us to the cross and God's love displayed in Jesus. This is Ephesians 1. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Or 1 Peter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade because as we have what god has done for us in christ dwell in us richly we will be prompted to praise we will have our hearts comforted and assured but notice that we will also be moved to invite others to join us for who god is and what god has done for us in jesus is good news for all to hear Verse 19 of the psalm, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Notice that David has moved from pleading with himself to praise as the psalm opened to now urging all people, in fact all of creation, to join in as the psalm closes. And all people must join in praise because the question of who God is, who does rule and who will rule has been settled, verse 19. 
And Jesus made this absolutely clear for us by his resurrection. Having risen, he appears to his disciples and declares, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. As the risen king sits on his throne, the angels and the heavenly hosts are summoned to worship by David in verses 20 to 21. And Revelation 5 gives us actually insight to heaven and what is happening now, as John says in verse 13, And I heard, in, uh, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. All of heaven is in praise of Jesus and all people, all God's creation everywhere, verse 22, are called to join in. And so notice that the total universal worship of King Jesus is achieved by calling individuals to praise him. Just, with an or, just as with an orchestra, each individual voice is as necessary as the total sound. But notice that that must begin firstly with us. Notice that this kind of evangelistic, this missional thrust of verses 19 to 22 is the outworking of David's own commitment to praise God and remember all his benefits. It's as we commit ourselves to the heartfelt worship of God that we are then moved to call others to praise the Lord too. Because although David does call on all people everywhere to praise the Lord, the psalm finishes with where it began as David speaks to himself. Verse 22, praise the Lord, my soul. And so do you share David's longing that you in any and every season will praise the Lord? Do you or will you preach the gospel to yourself, constantly urging yourself to praise Jesus? And I wonder what comes to mind for you with that call of praising the Lord. Sometimes I think we go straight to hands in the air, tears in the eye as we sing our lungs out, to God. And while praising the Lord certainly includes our singing, notice that the praise that David longs for and has in mind isn't merely lip service, nor is it some emotional high that runs around saying God is good and pretends that the sorrows and hardships of our world don't exist. No, David actually tells us throughout the psalm what kind of praise God calls for. Verse 11, so great is his love for those who fear him. Verse 13, the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Verse 17, the Lord's love is on those who fear him. To fear God is to see him rightly. It's to see him as the holy, perfect, eternal creator God. And in seeing him rightly, it is then to give God the claim upon your life. He rules. He is number one. Put simply, to fear the Lord is to give him an all of life response. It's what was said in verse 18. To fear the Lord is for those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. 
And so while praising the Lord will certainly include our singing and our words, these words are to be the overflow of hearts that delight in God and whole lives that are given to him in faithful service. And so how is your zeal to give God that kind of praise? Have you let yourself become content to give God something substantially less than the all-of-life worship he both calls for and deserves? Have you let yourself believe that the benefits of God are actually anything less than satisfying? Have you let yourself forget that he and he alone is your soul's delight? And will you wrestle with yourself to come back to that reality? I imagine that for many of us, arguing with ourselves is a completely foreign idea. And sadly, I think taking time to purely thank God for our many benefits is foreign to us as well. Have you forgotten what an absolute privilege and treasure it is to be a Christian? To know Christ and his immeasurable love? In his commentary on this psalm, French theologian John Calvin says that man without the knowledge of God being the most miserable object that can be imagined, the discovery which God has been pleased to make to us in his word of his fatherly love is an incomparable treasure of perfect happiness. If this pandemic has shown us anything about our world that does not know Jesus, it is exactly that. And so we must let God's word in Psalm 103 tonight shake us out of our apathy, confront our contentment to give God anything other than our total affection, and challenge our complacency to ignore our world without hope. Uh, For some time, uh, I've been quite committed to not dancing at weddings. I really don't like it. Uh, I didn't dance at my own wedding, and I've kind of joyfully fought off many a friend and family member who have sought to drag me on to the dance floor. I've even happily resisted the attempts of newlyweds to take me out there. I'm happy to sit back, arms folded, and watch. I'm too comfortable to risk the embarrassment Too proud to acknowledge that I don't know what I'm doing or that I would participate just simply for the joy of others. And I'm far too cynical to think that I'd actually enjoy it. And yet I hope that that can never be said about my Christianity. Too comfortable to change my ways and give God my all. Too proud to acknowledge my fears, my failures and my weaknesses and too cynical to think anything good can come from calling others to join me in praise of Jesus. Because the beauty of Psalm 103 is that while God calls for holistic and genuine praise, we are assured that he understands and provides for our frailty. We are to be people who praise the Lord with our inmost being, who fear him, who obey him totally and the psalm assures us that this happens as we see jesus as he truly is our loving and compassionate savior who knows our weakness and has made provision for us 
to enjoy him forever, even at great cost to himself. So let's be constant in praying the words of Ephesians 3, that being rooted and established in love, we may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Let's maintain our zeal, our appreciation by talking with, by arguing with ourselves, by forgetting not all his benefits and by coming back to the cross and praising our Lord of love and compassion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus who died for us the ungodly. Make it our longing now, our heart's desire, to praise our Lord, to give you that authentic, all-of-life worship you deserve and will be good for us. Confront our apathy, comfort our fears and failure. Bring us back to Jesus, who alone is and who alone can be our soul's delight both now and forever, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.